Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpe, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. And welcome back to The Common Bridge. This is the second of a two-part interview with Ranked Choice Advocate Rob Ritchie. We're going to start with Rich's last comment from last week's episode to put the final part of this conversation into context. So let's join Richard Helpe and Rob Ritchie in conversation. Yeah, look, the, the Republicans, if they had any brains, would find a way to, to, to show Trump the door. Okay, and I've been saying that for years. We've, the last two presidential cycles, been a, a lesser of evils. It, we, we haven't got any really good choices, okay, in my humble opinion, in, in, in the last two cycles. I was just curious as to why that would, why that tilt would go there, because the, the object of the game is not only the election, but it's what people do after they get there. So when I hear that, you know, a, a Democrat or a Republican won, and, but, but gosh, they sure appealed to the other side, and then they go to Washington. And you know who's in Washington? It's, you know, Kevin McCarthy and it's Nancy Pelosi. It's Charles Schumer and it's Mitch McConnell. And they're controlling committee assignments. They're controlling campaign funds. And they're making sure they get that vote out. That tension for Mary Peltola, when she gets to Washington, that pressure on her to vote with the party, although it may be against her more you know, conservative or libertarian uh, electorate. That right. to me is where we begin to get real democracy back, where we're not so concerned about the outcome of the election based on what badge the election's over and I'll go represent us. And, you know, when I think about presidential politics, if you go back to the 1960 election, we had two people, either which was qualified to be president of the United States. And it was a very close election, and they both had respect for each other. And, and there's a great deal written about how they handled that. Now, neither one of them, neither Nixon nor John Kennedy, could be nominated by their own party today. Nixon was far too liberal with the Environmental Protection Agency, with uh, health care reform and such. And, of course, Kennedy was also a defense hawk and, and, a, and a tax cutter. So we've gone from that time to this really extreme polarization and it's filtered down and and that's you know my concern is what forms of of voting reform can help us get to the point where we can hold those that we elect accountable to us again yeah well i think that's um that's a great question and core to i think the why we think actually ranked choice voting will ultimately grow to be used in all of our elections just to speak to that point about, you know, being just sort of a, a rubber stamp Democrat or Republican af after being elected, if Peltola acts that way in Alaska, she won't last very long, right? It, it is a Republican-leaning state, or at least a conservative state, sort of a better way to think of it. And and, and, and similarly, um, you know, Jared Golden, the one, the Democrat who won in northern Maine, it's kind of a somewhat similar 
And he has now served, he's, you know, finishing his fourth year. He's in another uh, close election with the same, uh, actually two people from 2018, interestingly, that Bruce Pollock was running again. But, you know, he has been um, kind of among the most conservative Democrats in his voting record, but not on everything, right? He sort of picks, picks his battles, picks his issues. And I think, but because you're breaking down the binary, right, because there's sort of this openness of choice, it allows politics to breathe more, right? It just allows as, uh, more candidates to be part of the mix, voters to think outside of just single choiceness. And I think getting to your point, it creates the space for different kinds of candidates and for voters to think about them and not to be just so kind of dug in for one versus the other and you just get to vote for one, right? So I think that's the promise of ranked choice voting. It can break us out of sort of a duopoly or kind of, or, you know, this, this two-person kind of situation and create these incentives for, for candidates to do something different, which speaks to why Peltola was so interesting that she can get that many Republicans to make her second, why uh, uh, Jared Golden got, you know, such a big percentage of independents to rank him second. And it's, it's, it, Republicans can do that too, right? It's not like Democrats are the only people that, that can find ways to connect with people. And that's what we've seen in primaries, right? So when, when Glenn Youngkin, just to, to make a point about Republicans, Glenn Youngkin is now a pretty clear star of the party. He's not, a, you know, he's pretty conservative, uh, but at the same point, he wasn't the most conservative candidate running in that primary. He was a relatively new figure in Virginia politics. Um, people felt if it had been just a single choice election, he might have sort of fallen um, to like expectation games, like, well, he's not likely to win, so I won't even vote for him. And so, right. you know, righteous voting is kind of very liberating just to vote for whom you want. And, and, but when that contest happened and, and five candidates got eliminated one by one, you could see, everyone could see that actually he was positioning himself well to be a second or third choice or fourth choice or whatever it would be of backers of every other candidate right so so he wasn't he 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 showed that he was like this big tent candidate so that he came out of the primary with a clear majority and a clear ability you know where no candidate got more than about 30 percent in the first round but he was able to build a majority make this connection and a lot of virginia republicans feel that was really key to them winning for the first time in a decade in any statewide election so that and then they decided to use it for three congressional primaries this year by their own choice right. absent that kind of ranked choice voting the incentive is to run to the extreme and the you know outsized influence of donald trump which still boggles my mind that it it makes that encouragement is to run to that extreme because that's where the biggest pile of voters are uh, versus being who you are and saying, you know, you're, you're effectively applying for a job. And and kind of what I'm inferring in here, Rob, is that the opportunity for m more parties gets stronger uh, because you're not, if, if someone is voting for someone other than a Republican or a Democrat, if they're voting for an independent or one of the other parties, they're not really letting their vote act as a spoiler. They're expressing their real view. You know, so by, you know, they might, as you were talking about in Maine, they might independent, maybe the first choice, but second choice, maybe a Democrat, maybe a Republican. And throughout history, we, you know, we've had spoilers that are affected. So here's the thing I'm trying to work out is if the object of the game is to avoid the extremism and to get people with broad appeal. And I said, all right, so I'll go back to the 1992 presidential election. Okay. Bill Clinton won that election 
with 43% of the vote. And when you break down the votes, like California, Ross Perot got 20% of the vote. He got almost 16% in New York. And and I think, well, what would it, you know, it's speculation where Perot's voters would have gone for choice too. But it's such a significant part. And I can tell you this as a personal level. I was standing in line to vote for the president in 1992. And I would have said, you know, I, I thought Perot would probably do a better job. He, it's a lot of the things we're dealing with, with the deficit and things today. He it was central to his platform, but I ended up not doing it because I just thought, well, I'm, my vote's not going to count. You don't want to throw your vote away. Yeah. Right. And that's the expectation game that really makes it hard for independents and third parties. It's sort of like a, they're, they're really in a bind because either that happens and they don't get many votes or they get you know a relatively substantial number of votes like Perot ultimately did. And then people say, you're a spoiler and you're terrible. Right. And, 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 and so... It is, you know, we keep having that debate and conversation. In fact, that was the first year for fair vote, right? And so if you go, if, if, if you go back further in time, uh, John Anderson had run for president in 1980 and he had been an independent. He actually had been polling in the twenties. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, as an independent, he's a Republican who, uh, who had served 20 years in Congress, but he was of a, the more moderate liberal wing of the party. And um, when Ronald Reagan was becoming the nominee, he he wanted to put his name forward to, to sort of hold on to his vision of what the party should be. And he had a lot of support. But then ultimately, he was in that position of like people didn't think he was going to be viable. And he only got like seven percent. Anyway, John was actually our our, our founding uh, advisory chair, um, national advisory chair. And we had an op- he had an op ed in the New York Times in the first month of fair vote, um, making the case for ranked choice voting. Um, in the context of that election. And so it's always made sense, by the way. It's, you know, there's, and, and it's not the only thing that we've worked on, but it's something that we've consistently worked on. And it's been exciting to see such progress. But it, but it, but we have to get out of that cycle, right? It's like, because they're already talking about for 2024. Oh, it might be Biden versus Trump. No. Gosh, if it is, then we have to have somebody else. And, but then it's going to be a third party and then it's going to be a split vote. And it's like wringing their hands. And it's like, you know what, guys? There is a solution, right? And don't just wring your hands, do something about it. Look, I remember John Anderson in the debates in 1980, and he was really good, okay? <laughs> they, they had a question about nuclear weapons, and uh, I forget what Reagan said, and uh, Jimmy Carter talked about Amy. <laughs> Anderson steps in, and he says, well, I don't know about this, and I don't can't speak for little Amy, but they came out with something very smart. So it's a very it was a good man, you know, service. And you mentioned the liberal wing of the Republican Party, which it doesn't exist anymore. The conservative Democrat is all but a, a extinct species. And so, but I'm trying to say, right in '92, I don't think anybody would think Bill Clinton is an extremist. I mean, he ran as a centrist, as a third party. But in all likelihood, under ranked choice voting, would have lost, given what likely would have happened with Perot's voters. But there's another case in history where we elected a president with 39.8% of the vote. Do you know who that president is? That was Abraham Lincoln. Who was seen, by the way, as an extremist of his time. Before we leave Lincoln, but make your point, but I do want to make sure that we talk about his nomination as well. Yeah, right. Exactly right. So my point is this, that I'm, my view. And and, uh, so that I'll just make that point. In the nomination, he was down by 20 points at the convention in the first round. He was in second. Got him sword, uh, you know, ultimately became, um, I guess, what head of head of uh, well, 
one of his cabinet secretaries, but but that Lincoln was the one that kind of built a consensus within the party. He was like sort of the second choice candidate of backers of others. So it ultimately became the nominee. So he was actually a beneficiary of ranked choice voting in the nomination. It, it, it was like a round by round ish, like, like ranked choice voting, right? They just voted repeatedly, which, which you can do in an in-person convention. And I'll say parenthetically, ranked choice voting is widely used in governmental elections, or rather in, in private, like non-government elections, like like party primaries and then organizational um, contests, because of that feature, it's like round by round voting. It's just a more efficient way of doing it. And anyway, in in in, in the general, um, yeah, it's a very complicated election for eight for eighteen sixty. But I will say he actually won more than fifty percent of the vote in states that would have allowed him to become president under the electoral college system. He just didn't even run in the South. Showed how polarized things were. He didn't even try to get any yeah, votes and, down. And, and down think down. about our last presidential elections. The last two, there were, you know, states that were just basically conceded to the uh, to the other party. It's like, why bother? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's, that's the great majority of congressional races are conceded. And at this point, you know, about 40... Uh, Maybe 38 states are just conceded from the get-go. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And and I think we all know that that means that we have an unresponsive government. And, you know, look, we we have solvable problems. I wrote a column this past week about health care, and the solutions are right in front of us. I've written about firearms and written about immigration policy and such. These are all solvable problems, but not if we can't even agree on what the issue is and people are going to have, quote, their own set of facts. Rob, this is a great topic, and, and it's really an honor to be talking to you about this. Some of the advocates, here's, here's what I'm kind of taken away from this, that pro-ranked choice voting, you can vote for your favorite candidate, even if you don't think that person is going to win. So that dilemma of, mm, I really like candidate A, but I don't think they have a chance, and, I, and I like, I, I mean, I'm in effect voting for my second choice because strategically I think they'll win. Instead of saying, this is my choice, and if I can't have them, this is choice two, choice three, choice four. And that I see where perhaps I'm, I'm an optimist that a measure of civility can come back into play, that I can't be so extreme. Yeah. and I mean, it, it's not like everyone will love everyone else. But here's the thing, is that what we see, and even the examples that we talked about in some detail, like the Alaska race and the Maine race, is that candidates who did a better job at connecting with the backers of another candidate were uh, rewarded for that. Indeed. Again, that's civility versus people being rewarded for partisanship. And I, and I, I obviously spend a lot of time reading and about policy and about politics and accessing as much media as I can get my hands on. And some of them, I'm wondering, like, who are the people that elected this and put that in office and continued to return them? because people can get in. Other things that are I've heard are positive that the runoff requirements are, you know, eliminated because there's in effect a pre-cooked runoff with voter turnout already set. I don't know this how prevalent are runoffs. You know, is that a 
you know, eliminating runoffs, is that a big thing or is that just kind of a, a little icing on the cake for the people that are in, in favor? It's a very big thing for local elections. It's actually pretty common to have either a traditional runoff or like a primary, like a nonpartisan primary where only two, two people advance. Mm-hmm. Um, so a whole lot of the uses of ranked choice voting are taking these two round systems and folding it to one. Probably of the cities that use ranked choice voting, and we're up to more than 50. I would say some version of 40 of them folded two elections in 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 into one yeah. um in our in our federal elections we actually use we used to use runoffs more often but runoffs are complex for us right they cost money they add burdens to voters and candidates they of course make it a lot more expensive to run you've got to run again that that georgia runoff back in 2020 yeah. for our senate the estimates are about a billion dollars was spent in that runoff alone yeah. just on the candidates so that's a lot of money. Um, and, and, um, and if you just get it done in one round, you know, that doesn't happen. But so we see a handful of states using it, not, not many, like Georgia. Um, a lot, several more use it in their primaries. Um, and that's, you know, there's a really clear efficiency argument. We actually looked at the last 250 uh, congressional runoffs for primaries, and that's used in, uh, I think we're about eight states that do that these days. And um, the average drop in turnout was about 40%. So about, you know, yeah. almost, you know, that's a big decline in turnout and, and it costs money and everything. So ranked voting is a faster, cheaper way to handle that. Yeah, it, it, indeed. And um, I, I'm curious of what the outcome would have been in Georgia had they had the runoff. I assume not, had not had the runoff and had ranked choice voting because as you, to your point is there's a billion dollars spent and a lot more people saying things and, and who knows, what voters did. I'm sure some just rejected some of the candidates. Um, some of the, here's what some of the critics of ranked choice voting say that they, it splits the coalitions that political parties work to organize. And they're using examples like um, Sanders and uh, Biden and how the, the president has to appeal to that, that far left wing. And I thought about, you know, coming up, you know, a Mike Pence versus, you know, like a Mitt Romney. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney's a, been a centrist his entire life. You know, Pence has been more of a st- strong conservative, you know, particularly on social values. It, is there any validity to that, that the parties organizing coalitions are somehow weakened? I didn't quite get the link, but I'm just telling you what I'm looking up. It's very contextually made. I mean, I think that... Um Say that system we've been talking about in Alaska, where you can have two people of, of the same party um, running at the same time, um, that you know theoretically can kind of split split a split a party in, in into two. It does mean they have to work to really, you know, they have a, someone who articulates the case, and then you know the other side has to uh, has to make sure they try to hold them as second choices and you know look for common ground. I think. Um, if we think about independents and, and, and third parties, they already exist, right? It's just a way of, of recognizing their existence and having that be built into our politics. So I think, actually, rather than saying it's sort of somehow fracturing us, it's kind of creating an opportunity for those voices to be heard, their voters to be expressive, and the major parties have an incentive to incorporate that perspective in. The longest standing place that's used ranked choice voting is Australia. And they uh, generally, the the major two parties there win the great majority of seats. 
but they really have to work hard to be the second and third choice of any third party and independent. And they need to kind of keep bringing that energy in and adapting it to their themselves. So it's kind of incorporating perspectives. And I think that's the classic good, good coalition building. Great. And another term that I've, I've read and it's, a, and it's a criticism is something called an exhausted vote. Is there a common definition for this? There's some weird terminology in our field, I must say. That's a weird one. Uh, we actually just call those inactive votes, but it's out there as an exhausted vote. Um, that's a person who just didn't rank any of the active candidates. So when we talked about Alaska and about 20% of the Begich voters, when he was eliminated, didn't rank either uh, Peltola or Palin, their ballots became exhausted, we would call inactive. But it does mean that... Um, you know, it's not a mandatory rank system, right? So you don't have to rank, but that in turn means certain people don't rank and then their ballots become, they become inactive. I mean, it's some, some would call it a, a bird. So our, our critics on that one, if we were requiring people to rank, I'm sure we would get a lot of criticism by not requiring to rank. We're now getting some criticism that some people don't rank, but it's just up, it, it's up to the voter. That was the other criticism is that people might leave the voting place without understanding how to do that. And that's why I asked a question about what your group, FairVote, is doing in terms of educating and, and processes and things. And I do understand your point about if a person is a very pro a particular candidate or party, and they've made that as their primary choice for whatever reason they choose to make it, but they might want to learn what those alternatives are. And because of that inactive or exhausted ballot status, they do want to make a second, a third, and a fourth choice. And that would be foolish to not do that in case your first choice didn't go in. I can see the benefits from there. Rob, are there any actions that you'd recommend that people take today? I mean, you've obviously, you've been at this for a really long time, since the uh, end of the first Bush administration, beginning of the Clinton administration. You've seen a lot. You've, you know, obviously been on a lot of uh, big name networks. And now, of course, being on the Common Bridge is, you know, pretty much the pinnacle. So I've I've reached the peak. Yeah, indeed. So if you were, you know, to talk to our listeners, our viewers and our readers and said, look, here's something you can do today, what would you advise them to do? Well, it's something that we have seen over and over again. I've worked on this for 30 years um, and almost all the progress that has happened, and it's a lot of progress has happened just this year alone, bills in 30 state legislatures, more, more, more than 30 states, six states legislatures passed some pro-ranked voting bill. Um, we've had a number of, say, we have, we have nine city and county ballot measures this November, all of which were put on the ballot by a charter commission or by the city council itself. Almost all those efforts started with some person in that community, some person in that state getting interested and talking to people or getting onto a charter commission and, you know, making it happen. And it, it, it's something that we have seen. Our system is, 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 is sprawling and we have a huge number of elections and things, but it's actually kind of porous as far as an opportunity to make a difference if you decide to. And, and, and the thing that I find with ranked choice voting, we, there's a lot of, there's a whole gamut of ways that it can speak to issues that um, some community may be having with, their elections, like, you know, the runoff election or some controversial race where six people ran for mayor and someone won with 23%. You know, you see these kinds of things and people say, gosh, I wish there was something better. And if you're an activist in that community, 
or you can connect with the local group. We now have state groups in more than 40 states. So if you go to fairvote.org and uh, get involved, or actually Fairvote Action is, is a branch of Fairvote. There are other allies. There's a group called Rank the Vote, which mm-hmm. is specifically focused on helping state groups be effective. Um, they can um, often get some going, and 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 that's um, that's that's exciting. You can actually use it on college campuses, for instance. We're up to about a hundred colleges and universities where student leaders have have adopted it for their student elections. Uh, young people, by the way, uh, overwhelmingly like ranked voting, uh, even. It's uh, it's one on the ballot almost everywhere. It's been on the ballot. One place that it didn't win in the last few years was Massachusetts, but eighty percent of people under thirty voted yes. And and I think it's like we're going to get to ranked choice voting. It's a matter of how how quickly I think. But I think that um, you can use it in your you know your organizational elections and so on. And there's tools to do that now. There, there's a lot of online tools. Um, and speaking of online tools, we have a thing called Rankit.vote. There there's other tools like that where people can just set up a contest for their friends and say, Hey, let's, you know, let's vote on something. And just here's, here's kind of a rank it tool. So fundamentally we, we like the idea of, of reimagining voting as ranking, that that's actually a better way to vote. And we've seen that happen in other countries that like Australia and Ireland, for instance, everyone ranks instead of votes essentially and for everything. And, and, and so I think that's actually a healthy direction for us and something that people can really do. Uh, they can do it or they can get involved in trying to get it done. Rob, this has really been a great education. And before we wrap up here, I, I want to ask one thing about the number of candidate, a number of political parties, excuse me. I know there's a lot of frustration with the two major parties, and I know that they've embedded themselves into our current process in ways that's very difficult to get out. But it just seems to me that with a ranked choice system, there might be opportunities for other parties to come to the fore. Am, am I wrong about that? I mean, here's the way they clearly can from the get-go, which is that the spoiler argument against a third party goes away, right? So, so they can participate on an equal basis and be considered for their merits rather than are for, you know, the calculations of whether they're a spoiler or not right so so it allows them at least to to be get into debates like the whole calculation to keep them out of debates is really like oh they're going to spoil the election and so on right so 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 it kind of opens up politics that way and i think there's a lot of hunger for third parties i will say we didn't get into this much but there's a an application of ranked choice voting that speaks to this even more than what we've talked about which is that congressional elections by statute and actually local and state elections can do this too often, can go from a winner-take-all system where, you know, 50% of the vote is necessary to win or the most votes to a some kind of American form of proportional voting where almost everyone ultimately gets to help elect someone. So it goes from, you know, as many as 49% of people not being able to help elect someone to, you know, maybe that number dropping to only 15 or 20 and like 80% of people get to help elect someone and they can be different candidates. So it's a, where, where people are electing more than one candidate at a time. And then you can have, you know, 25% elect this person, 25% that one, and 25% the third person. And you ultimately have three representatives. That's called the Fair Representation Act in Congress. It's, it's a bill that a number of members have put forward. And it really creates space for third parties to actually have a better chance to win, but certainly to be, to be impactful. And for the major parties to be more of their big tent, to be represented together. 
and the major parties to actually represent the same area together. So you would have like New York City Republicans, Panhandle Democrats of Texas, and so on actually represented and then working together because they're all representing the same people. That is a system that can be done by statute. It's not in the Constitution that we can't do that. And that would, I think, even go further than why we talk today to to kind of create um, a politics of with promotes unity, really promotes sort of unity out of difference and, and e pluribus un, uh, sort of unum kind of concept out of many one that we allow the many to be to be heard, to be more of them represented, and then ultimately they have some incentives to get to get things done together. And that's something that we um, think will actually go furthest in kind of getting to the uh, root of our polarization. Um, it's the next step. It's well, the next conversation to have. Right now, ranked choice voting is ready to win, and we are excited by that. But the conversation we ultimately want to see is about how we might change winner-take-all itself. Yeah, that's a topic that we've covered. And, you know, I'll be getting other guests on this show with other views as well. But universally, people want to get off the extremes, the rank or the partisanship. And I think the term you used is unity. Our current president ran hard on that as a theme. And I, I do think there's a great desire because, you know, in my travels throughout the country, uh, which are extensive, and at all socioeconomic levels for a long, very long period of time, the United States of America is filled with very compassionate and very generous people and very capable people. And then when you look at what's happening in our political system, it's, it's just not as good as the people are. And we, we need to get out of this system where the, the winner is the one that can tear down the other one, get a plurality and then run amok until they're tossed out in two years or four years. And potentially, if we get reasonable people that are willing to enter the fray because there's an opportunity that they're not going to go into a process that just doesn't pick the best people. Yeah, there's a reward that comes from this beyond what we've talked about. That's a direct reward for candidates for reaching out. I think it's the reward for all of us that it creates a a way in for that kind of different kinds of candidates. And then if they see a lot of more people like that, it makes, it makes service that much more exciting that you can work with other people that are trying to actually, you know, speak their mind, but get things done at the same time. Um, and I think that, um, that's something that, uh, you know, we can't oversell our changes, but I think it is actually a very, uh, uh, promising byproduct of, of, of going to these changes. Rob, before we wrap up here today, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you'd like to cover? Well, I think we ended up talking a little bit about, um, you know, the the ultimate way that 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 ranked choice voting can be used in the multi-member districts on the ballot in, in Portland. I will say short term, I expect the quickest growth in our use of it in statewide elections will actually be in presidential primaries, which we talked about. But that's something we see. We expect several state legislatures will take that up next session. Um, as they look to 2024, they still have time to get ranked voting into the 2024 presidential primaries. So that's exciting for us. Um, and I just think um, that general ability to reimagine voting as ranking is a fun thing to go through. And just even as you just sort of look at politics a- as it is, kind of imagine like, huh, what would it be like if I had a chance to actually rank these candidates and how might I vote differently? And 
it's it then you start realizing that gosh i really wish i could do that <laughs> right so anyway we we do look forward to uh, engaging with your listeners super appreciative you're, you're doing these whole series of conversations with people and glad to be part of it well thank you for being here any closing thoughts i think we've covered it great we've been talking today with rob ritchie of fairvote.org please look this up this is a uh, of course, controversial topic, but that's what we do on the Common Bridge. We have good, polite discussions with experts, with people that are advocates from certain areas. And, and it's it's our opportunity to hear each other out and talk as Americans and as you know people around the world in our audience. So with my guest, Rob Ritchie, this is Rich Healthy signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on the Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.